Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly here with you on News Talk. Now, we're over a year into the new normal, with many of us working differently to how we were in 2019. But how is it going? And is data the thing to unlock the next wave of employee well-being? Rachel Fellows is the Chief Wellbeing Officer at Aon and she joins me now. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. I wanted to start by asking an easy one. Uh, Do you think the lessons we learned during the pandemic around, I suppose, the value of team, work-life balance and so on are being remembered as we continue post-pandemic? I mean, I love the fact you're starting with such an easy question, Jess. Thank you very much. Um, I think there's a couple of ways I just sort of respond to your initial question there. And one is this concept of bruising. So I do feel as humans, we're, we're not fully recovered yet. And we can see that in the data, but also probably from our own personal experience. So in the sense of, are we ready to completely start a new chapter as humans? I don't think we're there yet. But also, and I've been chatting today to to clients and colleagues in in the um, Talent Summit Centre and just talking about this idea that maybe we just go beyond what happened and we can forget about it and move on. And I think the general consensus in the room is absolutely not. What it's done is leapfrog well-being into all of our decisioning, in in particular in, in the workplace. And our expectations have shifted for the long term now. So I think Jess, just kind of building on that, I'd say we've learned a lot but actually now's time to build on that learning, not forget the learning. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because many people I've spoken to in recent times have reported, I suppose, a mixed bag in relation to this question. Some people say there's been a concerted effort to mind staff and place a focus on well-being whilst also being flexible. But then others that, you know, whether it's friends, family, uh, just people I've met along the way, they're saying that, you know, it seems to have disappeared a little bit. And I'm just wondering if there's a fear factor or maybe even a danger that we're not all on the same page when it comes to our approach to work in 2023. And I think that's a really interesting point. And again, I probably respond in, in two ways. One, the power of personal choice now is us as humans, as talent on the ground. There are organisations still very much leaning into this. So we can consciously choose to, to move from where we're at if it's not working for us. And I think that does keep the broad brush sentiment of organisations on their toes, especially as we're all striving for diverse talent and workforces as well. And then just thinking about that from an organisational perspective, I hear you in some sectors and with some um, countries as well, but I'm also hearing the complete counter to that. I'm also hearing organisations that really want to strive to more And we're typically doing that as peer groups now. And we're typically doing that in a way that is genuinely looking at data first to ultimately link to business outcome in in a more comprehensive way. And we can chat maybe a little bit more about my role and how it's structured, because I think it is interesting. I'm not solely reporting into the head of HR globally. I also Mm. report into our head of health and our head of human capital. And that's very much in the spirit of co-ownership across an organization. And that's really where we're hearing the mature organizations begin to respond to the 2023 agenda around this. Yes, I'm interested in this because I've heard anecdotally over the years from different leaders that they see a benefit on the bottom line of spreadsheets that, you know, a happy workforce equals better results. Does that ring true with your findings? I think so. And if we just go to some very specific examples, Jess, we can look at the reality of the cost of ill-being on the last 24 to 36 months. 
I think it'd be quite hard to meet someone who hasn't been affected in a way that's hit the bottom line. So you might also put that bottom line in your own family dynamic, but let's keep it in the organizational context now. The cost of attrition, the cost of poor retention rates, which we know have waned, in particular if the culture is slightly more endurance related as opposed to resilience and well-being, they're very real. And we all know that the talent dynamic, the market is even more competitive. And we've talked about the great resignation. We've talked about quiet quitting. And we're now very much in the spirit of colleague cushioning. How do we actually better support a sustainable life, ultimately? So I agree. And I'd also place this conversation so far in the category of, of ill being data, not well being data. And this is something else that maybe we can come on to now, but we are looking at the cost of data, but we're now also thinking about positive well-being data and how that influences things like our environment, social and governance approach and other things that we've got long-term commitment to. And, and, and finally, I just add in, we've all probably just come off our, our performance cycle. Many of us get our compensation and our performance reviews at this time of the year. And this narrative of how are we feeling and how much are we embedding um, our well-being into the conversation and how we then choose to feel about our organization is very much a performance initiative. Can I keep going as I am? And that's very much the sort of tone that we've tried to be um, ensuring is woven into, into the compensation cycle at Aon. One thing that I think we should clarify, and maybe it's a difficult question, but when you talk about well-being, what are you talking about? Because... I'm sure individuals would have different definitions, but from a business point of view, what falls under that umbrella? It doesn't feel difficult. It feels like a welcome question, Jess. So I, I start with the academic definition. So if you think about well-being, it really was a narrative around attention points between happiness and satisfaction. Hey, maybe in my life I have one, not the other. Maybe I have both or maybe I have neither. And what am I going to do about that? What's interesting is you start to implant that way of thinking in the organizational space. You then pick up language like resilience. So when things aren't working, how do you bounce back? And, and the language for us internally and externally at the moment is then how do you keep doing that? How do you bounce back again and again and again over time? And that's underpinned by human sustainability. Then to pick up on that more practically, Jess, we very much think about the three layers of accountability on human sustainability. Because actually, do you know what? I'm responsible for my own well-being and my own journey here. And as Aon, they can provide me with the best-in-class support, resources, even training on that, but it's still my accountability. However, it's ultimately my boss's responsibility to create an environment that enables that team to thrive. And it's ultimately our CEO's responsibility to think about the organizational well-being space. And that is becoming really crystal clear as tension points, whether it be through employee relations, even litigation, but also in the spirit of the type of questions we're asked at point one on an interview where new colleagues are considering joining Aon or indeed our clients. So that's really how we're thinking about it. One of the challenges that can sometimes arise when I suppose SMEs come to this issue is that there's a perception that a load of money has to be spent to curate this environment of well-being. So they have to have bright yellow walls and ping pong tables and so on. But from listening to you, it sounds more like, uh, I suppose, structural changes within the organisation are what's needed rather than the bells and whistles. 
Yeah, and I think it's all part of the same picture. But I'd be really interested in, let's use your analogy, if you're sitting in an office with yellow walls, pink pens and a ping pong table, um, but you've still got the stress of overwhelm of too much work. That then feels like a bigger irony that the individual and the organisation has to manage. So I, I do feel that starting to think about embedding well-being as an operational and an organisational concept is critical. So let's play that out with an example. Um, let's use Aon and say, hey, look, we want to grow by 10% this year in a recessionary environment. And we also want to innovate into new spaces. I'd then be saying, and what's our hypothesis around our organizational well-being and resilience? So do we want to, in the innovation space, simply stay the same? Or do we actually want to grow our resilience over the next 12 months and our growth? And if so, how do we do that? And I think that's the type of sort of strategic narrative we need to enforce ultimately our leadership team, but also other leaders to be thinking about. It's an and, it's part of that equation of, of, a, of a, health or a healthy organizational resilience model now. Another point I've been really interested in from research carried out pre and during and post pandemic is the difference between a manager and a leader. Because it seems like we're finally catching on that just because somebody is great at their job and then they get promoted, it doesn't instantly mean they're a brilliant people manager. Does that feed into some of the issues you've come across? I love this debate. I, I appreciate where you're taking the conversation. And if you think about leadership uh, in light of our conversation, our leaders at Aon set the tone three years ago that well-being is an emerging risk that we need to manage. And as a result, they made the strategic decision to create the chief wellbeing officer role. So that is what I frame as leaders are responsible for the organizational resilience of Aon and how we future-proof the risks in that. The managers, I hear what you say, that, that dialogue around, I'm a, I'm a subject matter expert, but I'm not actually great with people. How does that then play out in the modern environment? And it seriously exposed the fact that resiliency and the currency of emotional intelligence around well-being is in the top three requirements now for future skills for managers. And that's all over all the research. Mm -hmm. And so I think leadership setting the strategy, great, but managers are very much holding this, how do we make this part and parcel of the team and, and the real kind of living and breathing fabric and culture of the organization. And it is tough because especially if you layer it on, as just another thing when you're in the middle. So the really thoughtful approaches are, what else might we take off to then focus on resilience as a key priority for our managers? Yeah, I, I really do think it is an interesting one. I, I want to talk briefly about the Aon Global Survey because the, uh, the, the results that you have are quite interesting. One of the findings that jumped out to me was that improving employee well-being by 4% results in a 1% increase in company profit and a decrease in 1% of employee turnover. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the significance of those stats? Yes, I mean, definitely. And I also hope that we get stronger statistics around this. So if you think about where we said there's, a, there's an emerging gang of mature clients who are linking well-being to business outcomes, these are two specific points of that. And brilliantly, one of those is, a, is an ill-being point. So how do we best kind of create an ROI if we're looking at the risks? And one of those data points is also an ROI on the culture. Uh, but it's still quite young as a territory. So we're now proving the concept. 
But we need to go harder. We need to gain more mass and more of a, a, ben- a baseline and a benchmark behind that. And so this is really where I think the more mature organizations are pushing the dial this year. Um, and, and for us, you know, we link well-being at the moment to our engagement data. But that's chapter one. And chapter two from 2024, the aim should be and will be to then connect that to performance data both individual performance, but also organizational performance. And the reason, Jess, that we're doing that is as a, a, a very much on the same line track as the ROI is because in our last three quarterly earnings calls, we talked about well-being. We had questions from shareholders about well-being, and that's completely new territory for us. So we absolutely need to be spot on with a data point that supports the why, but also the fact that culturally now it's expected that there is a why. So we need to have the evidence behind that. And is this, this could be a stupid question, but is this something that requires constant measuring to see if, I suppose, where the focus is going is actually making a difference? Yeah. So the way that we're framing it at Aon and and also in collaboration with some of our clients is we're using something called the Human Sustainability Index. So we very much look at our ill-being data, but we also then look at the positive well-being data, the sentiment of how our probably likely 90% of the organization are doing. And this is very much an iterative process, Jess. So we have a deep dive, but we also pulse on that. And then we integrate it lightly also into our, into our engagement surveys. So what we then do with that information, if you think about my 2023 strategy, I now know what Q1 and Q2 priorities are, but I have no idea what Q3 and Q4 will look like. I have a gut feel, but I haven't got the data yet to respond to that. And that's the reality of data-led strategies, very much in response as the process and the routines are set up in place and responding to that, which includes the investments, maybe even dialing back on some investments and reorientating them to the actual relevant need at the point in time. I know this might be a difficult one to answer at this stage, but there's been so much talk about the rise of automation and robots in the workplace and so on. As time goes by, do you think the role of humanity and empathy in the workplace are going to become more important and be a key driver, I suppose, in where in deciding and helping people to find where they want to work and how long they'll stay? I think this is a brilliant point. And I think building on the data, so you have the routines, but what we've also done is created well-being personas off the back of that more granular data. So we begin to understand actually for a particular gender at a certain life stage, the likely toolkit or support network around them and consistency. And maybe let's call out new colleagues. Consistently, we're seeing the need for a sense of belonging as one of the highest well-being needs of that population. Very much talks to your humanity point. And this stuff is not a digital experience. This is about the fact that I'm in Ireland and I've hugged some Aeon colleagues for the first time that I've met. And you're playing off each other and you're feeding a sense of meaning and purpose and a mental and emotional health that you don't get from a digital experience. So we're not belittling scalability and automation. We're complementing it. And that's really what we're trying to do, especially you know, Aeon's 50,000 people. It's a big place and I can't go and hug everybody yet. Give me a few more years. But I think that balance between the two is absolutely the way to go. And we're asked more and more for that type of formula. My final question is, and I suppose it kind of ties back into something I mentioned earlier on. Uh, do you think the talk around well-being is a trend that will firstly be taken more seriously and not seen as, you know, the soft, fluffy side of the business 
And then secondly, be fully embraced by every generation of the workforce, not just the younger ones who I suppose almost demand it now. Yeah, what a great question to end with. And I'd probably maybe just pluck out the word trend there and say, I don't think it is a trend anymore. I think this is very much a human necessity, a skill set that all of us need. And for the first time, I mean, I love what you touched on there. And I probably just, I throw in the language of endurance. That's how we used to frame resilience. You get your head down, you push on through. But isn't the pandemic the perfect experiment, if I'm allowed to use those two words together, to actually challenge us all to say, I can't keep putting my head down now and pushing on through. I've got to my limit and I need to start to rethink about different ways of sustaining myself. And I think, you know, we use the human sustainability index model. So the attributes you're talking to about developing a currency or language around emotional health, even hormonal health. Um, also, this sense of, of deeper and more intimate um, connections with our with our relationships and our network in the workplace. This is now the expectation of multiple generations. And it's not just necessarily because I get in, it's part of my lived experience. It might be now once removed. How do I want to relate to a younger colleague or even my children or vice versa? How do I want to connect better and understand the, the well-being needs of my grandparents? So, you know, most organizations now might have five generations within them, if not six. And understanding these differences is, is critical. And also when seeing from science, we're seeing from heart rate variability, from neuroscience, that there is clout behind having a diverse skill set around this. And that really helps people with an eight-legged table as opposed to a three-legged one bounce back far easier. Yeah, it's a fascinating space and I'm sure there will be plenty more conversations around it. Rachel Fellows, the Chief Wellbeing Officer at Aon, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you so much for having me.